First Bible reading is on page 1024 in the Church Bibles. This is John, the whole of chapter 17. Page 1024. Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in, you, in them. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, this is on page 916. Matthew 4, verse 18. 
As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Thank you, Helen. And as we welcome Paul Whittle to come and speak with us this morning, let us pray for him. Lord God, we thank you that Paul is able to be with us this morning. We thank you for the work that he has done in preparing this uh, the sermon on your son, and I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in new ways through the words that Paul is about to speak to us. We thank you and ask this in your name. Amen. I haven't got a light, so I think uh, oh. I'll try use the other. You I'm might. Go over there. Are you happy to use the yeah, handheld? That's great. Might be better if you couldn't hear, you never know. <laughs> um, just to say thank you, Liz, for your welcome. It's really good to um, be here with you this morning to um, share worship here at Camborne. Um, I seem to come here quite a bit, but not very often on a Sunday. Um, it's actually quite a long time. Um, I didn't calculate just how long, but um, I've been here on a Sunday before, but it's quite a long time ago, so it's, it's good um, to do that. And just to say, one of my um, reasons for being here today is as one of the senior church leaders in the end, a vacancy when you don't have a minister, just to say that we are very aware of that, that we stand alongside you in that. Um, my, my day job, as it were, um, sometimes I say if you've got one of these, you don't have a day, a day well, only a one day a week job, but it's not like that, believe me. Um, I'm uh, what's called the moderator of the United Reformed Church for the Eastern Synod. Um, which stretches way across um, a big chunk of the east of England. So I, I spend quite a lot of time traveling around um, Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex and Cambridgeshire and a tiny bit of Hertfordshire um, and doing all sorts of things. Um, I don't have a church of my own as a, a, a regional person, I, um, but I have responsibility for the 130 or so United Reformed churches across that area. Um, if people don't understand what a moderator is, um, you're probably in good company because I'm not sure I do a lot of the time either. Um, I tend to say, which I don't make any claims to be at all, but just because everybody kind of has heard of it and knows what it is, it, it's really our, as close as you can get, and it is different, our United Reformed Church equivalent to being a bishop, so I'm the, the kind of senior um, leader. And one of my particular roles at the moment is chairing the group that... Um, from the different denominations support the church here at Camborne and, and so I'm very much um, involved at the moment. I've met with your church council, I've talked to various people and we're working together on what God might be saying to us um, about the future. And that's really what I want to say to you that um, it, it seems that people can get a bit nervous when the minister goes but God doesn't go. 
and that's the important thing. And um, I, I don't know where we're going to go. Um, I don't know who the next minister is going to be. Um, and I don't know when that next minister is going to arrive. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing to rush. People just want to fill it. But that's not always the best way. And there are some things that we need to do. But I just want to assure you that the, the wider church, um, in, in different ways, in different people, but certainly um, speaking particularly for myself, is very much with you. And looking forward to what God might be saying to all of us um, and looking forward to where God is going to take Camborne Church. Because the important thing is it's not where you want it to go. It's not where I want it to go, but it's where God wants it to go. And I believe that will, um, will happen. Um, I don't live too far away. I live um, kind of close to Addenbrooke's in Great Shelford. So it's actually um, really nice to have what I call a local um, church that I'm preaching at because I can end up going down to South End or across to Lowestoft and all sorts of places um, and driving. Usually it's not quite as much, but it can easily be an hour and a half or a bit more. So because on a Sunday morning, I'm, I was pretty confident the A14 would be okay, which it's not always, of course. Um, it was um, a nice, easy um, drive to be with you. And it's good to have the opportunity and to share with you. I mean, what a great theme. Um, I've been asked to talk about Jesus. Um, I've, I could have you here all day. Don't worry, I won't. Um, but it, it's, it's really good to have this and to share with you in this um, theme that you're doing for a few weeks around the Trinity. And particularly to, to, to start, I think, with the question, who is Jesus? Because that seems to me to be the, the place to start. A question that's been asked so many times by so many people and has received so many answers. But just to, to, to put a bit of context in what you're doing, um, we're continuing, as Liz has said, our reflections on the Trinity. And isn't that a great um, thing? Um, that God is Trinity is awesome, complicated, and inspirational. All of those three, they're very different. Um, if you want to try and understand the Trinity, I'm just going to give you one bit of advice in one word, don't, um, because it, it, it's just beyond that. Um, when I was in early ministry, which is a long, long time ago now, I always used to try and be on leave on two Sundays. Um, one of those was Remembrance Sunday. Um, now, actually, I did work out, and I can't remember which year it was, it was a few years ago, but the last time I was here was Remembrance Sunday, so that gives you the illustration. I've got over that. Um, but the other Sunday that I always used to try and avoid um, was Trinity Sunday, because um, a lot of churches expect you to talk about the Trinity, and I kind of thought, that's too complicated. I'll leave that to someone else. I've got over that too, because actually I think, um, I don't try and explain it because I don't try the impossible, but I think there is so much to be gained because saying you can't understand fully the Trinity is not saying it's pointless to think about it. It's, it's not. There's a lot to be gained. And part of the wonder of our triune God is that there is always more. We can learn things, we can discover things, but we'll never get to the point where we know it all. And that's great. Um, and if you if you one that kind of mind. Some of us want to know everything about something, um, and there are fields in which that can happen. But when it comes to relationships of any kind, I don't think that's how it is. And what we're interested in, what we're about in the end, is 
it's good to know things about God. It's interesting. It's fascinating. It can do a lot for us. Uh, but in the end, what matters is not knowing about God, but knowing God. And that's a big difference. And so today we continue our reflections on the Trinity and we recognize the complexity of what we're considering. Augustine, one of the greatest minds of the Western world, decided to have a think about the Trinity. And it took him 15 books to write about the Trinity. 15 books that took him a decade to write. But early on in that massive work, Augustine had seven statements about God. Seven basic, simple statements about God, about the Trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. And then after these six statements, Augustine made one more. There is only one God. That's the thinking that it is tough for us to get our heads round. We have experienced, we can experience three different modes of God's presence. God is the Father, the creator of arms to us as Jesus, living, suffering, dying, and rising. We experience God as Holy Spirit, that power that his, has intruded into our world as an experience of the presence and power of God. Three ways of describing, but one God. And today we focus in particular on the second person of the Trinity. You can't just do it. Um, I know because somebody told me, as you considered the Father last week, it touched on the Son and it touched on the Holy Spirit. It's inevitable. But we're focusing on Jesus. And there's so much that we can say about Jesus. We, even I, I've been, well, I don't know how long I've been preaching. I've been preaching for over 40 years now. I was stuck when I thought, where shall I begin? And so I thought, well, I'll begin with one of the Bible passages, and I thought I'd make it easy for myself. So I'd take the, the, the Matthew because it's shorter. And um, let's begin with Jesus' call to the first disciples. Did Jesus just bump into these four fishermen by chance? Somehow I don't think so. It's interesting, too, when we think about who he chose when he was looking for those first disciples. He didn't go for the religious or political elite. These were ordinary folk, earning their living, as no doubt did many who lived beside the lake by fishing. But Jesus now has a, a new role for them, and he calls them to abandon their nets and go with him. Those who made up the vast majority of the population of Galilee during the time of Jesus were the rural poor. They, they didn't have a lot. They were struggling. Life was not that easy. Things always seemed to just not quite work out. It was to such ordinary, struggling people that Jesus looked when he was seeking to find some disciples. You know, one of the things that constantly amazes me is that God chooses to use us, you and me, as partners, as 
disciples. God has a task that is just for you, just for me. And it's there ready and waiting. And we need to respond and it will be different things at different times. Everything has its right moment. Sometimes we, we want to rush at things. That works when we talk about the vacancy. Let's, let's, let's grab someone and, and let's have our next, our next minister in place tomorrow. We need to learn that we are not in charge of the timetable. God often takes a much longer view than we do, which doesn't mean that God can't do things instantly. Of course he can, and sometimes he does. But it's not always like that. And I often say that of all those, you know that fantastic list of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul writes down in Galatians 5? I often say, because it, I need to remind myself of this, that the one that I'm inclined to say that I need the most and find the most difficult to allow to work through me is the gift of patience. In an age of instant everything, it, it's so difficult to be patient. It's not how we do it these days. I mean, even now, if I want to read a book, I can be on Amazon and I can be reading that book within five minutes or less. That's how it is. But what we need times is patience. Going back to Matthew 4, this seems to be a casual encounter, but it's not. It's a transformative encounter. It really just isn't possible to meet Jesus and remain the same. Unless you're going to give Jesus a wide berth, and I hope you're not, are you ready to be completely turned around? Because that's the sort of effect that follows on from encountering Jesus. We're told that these left their nets, that's Simon and Andrew, that they left their boat and their father, that's James and John, and they went with him. They went with him on an exciting three-year journey that would take them around Galilee and beyond and accompanying Jesus in his mission of preaching, teaching, and healing. Are you ready to go where Jesus wants you to go? You know, lots of the time, instead of being ready to respond, we start thinking up the excuses. We, we know why we can't do it. One thing I do want to say to you, don't worry too much if that's how you are. It doesn't matter if that's how you start, it's just getting past it. If you are like that, you're in good biblical company. Jeremiah argued that he was far too young. Abram, well, I'm not sure that we're told, but I rather suspect that he thought he was too old. And just remember that. Abram was 75 when he was told to go off out of Haran to a new place. Jesus may well take us to unexpected places. And we're certainly quite likely to find ourselves rubbing shoulders with some of the folk we might not want to rub shoulders with. Because Jesus' love is for all. We say it in different ways and so often, but I believe that one of the big things we still need to learn is that God's ways are not our ways. God does not see things as we do, and God challenges us to see things in a different way. And that, in that we are helped if we look to Jesus, because Jesus shows us what God is like. 
I think that comes right through that, that wonderful prayer, that reading of John 17. But I was looking for a little summary, and I actually found the summary a couple of chapters away. And so I'm going to quote another chapter in John. But I think it is, um, it is the John 17 message. But I'm going to give you John 14 and verse 9, where Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. American preacher Barbara Brown Taylor describes how as a young child she used to like standing on her head. And she comments, when that was happening, trees grew down, not up. The sky was a blue lawn that went on forever. And for as long as I kept my balance, I could tap dance on it while birds and clouds flew under my feet. I liked standing on my head because it made me see old things in a new way. I liked it because it made life seem exciting and unpredictable. In a world where trees grew down and houses might fall up, everything seemed possible. And that's the good news, that God is the God of possibility. Jesus does turn things upside down. In all sorts of ways. He makes a radical difference and he calls us to do the same. We live in an age of specialisms. We, we look, we all have our little narrow areas. Somebody once said, and I really like this, that Jesus is a specialist in lost persons. Let me illustrate what I mean by telling you one of my favorite ever stories. It's... Um, it's told by an American minister called Robert Fulgham. It's one of those things. I wish this happened to me, but it didn't. It was um, his story, but still, I can still tell the story. And he writes this. Giants, wizards, and dwarfs was the game to play. Being left in charge of about 80 children, 7 to 10 years old, while their parents were off doing parenty things, I mustered them in, my, in the church hall and explained the game. And he says it's a large-scale version of rock, paper, and scissors. It involves some intellectual decision-making. But the real purpose of the game is to make a lot of noise, to run around chasing people until nobody knows which side you are on or who has won. Organizing this roomful into two teams, explaining the rudiments of the game, achieving consensus on group identity, all this was no mean accomplishment, but we did it. And the game started. And the excitement of the chase reached a critical point. And I yelled out, you have to decide now which you are, a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. And while the groups huddled in frenzied, whispered consultation, a tug came at my trouser leg. A small child stood there looking up at me and asked in a small, concerned voice, Where do the mermaids stand? Where do the mermaids stand? A long pause, a very long pause. Where do the mermaids stand? I said, Yes. You see, I'm a mermaid. There are no such things as mermaids. Oh, yes. I'm one. She did not relate to being a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. She knew her category, mermaid. And she was not about to leave the game and go and stand by the wall where a loser would stand. 
She intended to participate wherever mermaids fitted in. Without giving up dignity or identity, she took it for granted that there was a place for mermaids and that I would know just what that place was. Well, where do the mermaids stand? All the mermaids, all those who are different, who don't fit the norm, who don't accept the available categories and pigeonholes. And he does comment, if you can answer that question, you could do a lot. But answering that question is something which we, the church, should be doing and looking to. He comments, I sometimes get a moment of inspiration. And he said, as she stood there, I reached down and I took her hand and I said to her, the mermaids stand right here by the king of the sea. And he adds, by the way, mermaids do exist. I know. I met one. And I held her hand. We must recognize that Jesus calls us to engage with all and sundry, even the mermaids. Because yes, Jesus invited the unexpected and the unwanted to enter his community. He doesn't conform to expectations. Lots of his, his stories, parables as we usually call them, tell how we should engage with and recognize the contribution of those whom society would normally reject. When nobody turned up at the wedding feast, the servants were sent to invite all and sundry. Prodigal sons are welcomed home. Samaritans are recognized for the good they do. If you want a nice, easy life, which won't spring any challenges, then it's probably best to avoid following Jesus. Jesus gets involved, and Jesus went to all the parties. That's another thing. Do you remember how John the Baptist's disciples came one day and they said to him, your disciples are living too wild a life. They don't fast like we do, like the Pharisees do. And Jesus said, and about them needing to celebrate at the right time. And of course, Jesus went not just to parties, he went to all the parties. Because Jesus doesn't just go and have supper with respectable people. It isn't just those whom we would designate as nice, who we'd be happy to engage with, who get to entertain Jesus. It's everyone. He goes to the likes of Zacchaeus. How could he? But Jesus does so much more than that. Through his death on the cross, we can find reconciliation. And that's the important point. I've, I've focused on some of the, the challenges that we can relate to in which Jesus models life for us. But of course, we also need to take account of what Jesus has done for us. Ephesians 2 verses 16 to 18, Christ might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Through, for through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but essentially what we're saying is that Jesus through the cross, opens up to us the love of God. Jesus is both human and divine. 
There were clear divisions in the Ephesian society to which Paul was writing, and he's wanting to deal with that in that particular passage. Nothing new in having divisions in society. We know all about it, don't we? We're good at divisions. We're good at putting people into pigeonholes. We're good at categorizing. We're good at building walls. But we need to think of how we can move to that point of unity, how we can recognize the contribution that each one has to make. Because the message of welcome, the message of inclusivity, the message of hospitality, that's what I learned when I looked to Jesus. That's what Jesus is about. It's one of the core values of what it means to be one of God's people. How might it all play out? It's easy to say that we're all part of the family of God. It's, it's a little less easy to live it. There's a story of two little London lads who were protesting their undying loyalty to each other. And the first little boy said to the other, Hey, Bo Bobby, if you had a million pounds, would you give me half? Yes, of course I would, came the reply. What about if you had a thousand pounds? Yes, I'd give you half. What about if you had a thousand marbles? I'd give you half of them, replied Bobby. What about if you had two marbles? A moment's pause, and then a rather different response. That's jolly not well, not fair. You know I've got two marbles. Principles are great when we can keep them at arm's length, when they are pure theory. But Jesus wants us to take those principles and live them. And it's when we put it into practice that, yeah, we can run into trouble, but that's what the call is. God wants action. God wants us to live the way that Jesus did. In Mark 6, verse 34, we read, When he came ashore and saw a large crowd, his heart went out to them. I like that description. His heart went out to them. That's how we should live. Jesus shows us, and with Jesus' help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can. Amen.